0: Creative Zombie Studios presents the Subjective Comedy Podcast with Brad Scott. Brad Scott is a mediocre comedian from Indianapolis. This is his show. If you don't think it's funny, remember, comedy is subjective. My guest today finished third on America's Got Talent last year. He's one of my favorite people in life. We've known each other for over a decade. He is Ryan Meemiller. Ryan, thank you for joining us. How are you holding up here during the quarantine?
1: I'm doing as good as you can do, I guess. It's uh, it's just like anything. It's, uh, it's weird being out of work for this long. Um, you know, kind of coming- after... Well, what was I like Well, like after AGT, it was like I was go, go, go. You know, the, the show ended on a Wednesday. I flew home on a Thursday. I was on tour on Friday. Like that's kind of what my life was. And it was just busy. And it was city to city. I was performing literally almost every night. I think I'd been home less than three weeks total in between the time until I was forced to. So like the first like week or two of quarantine was awesome. <laughs> like it this was a nice uh, break. Yeah, it was it was great. I got to sleep. I was playing video games. I was just like I was just chilling. I was like, oh, I can get used to this. But of course, at that time, we didn't know exactly how long this was going to be going on and like every day. Like the the dread just got worse because like the first day you're like ah it's just a little precautionary it'll be fine and then like oh god now Tom Hanks is sick oh god now the NBA is closed <laughs> like every day was like a new nightmare so now it's it's one of those things that like I, I've made the best out of the time home but just like everybody else I'd rather be out working and and doing things so. I'm getting there. Some days I'm super productive. Some days I just stay in uh, my bed as long as possible <laughs> and start over the next. But, but yeah, I'm doing okay, I guess. This has been uh, this quarantine has actually
0: been wonderful for my career because now, like you all of my friends who were too busy to do my show, have plenty of time and. I mean, hell, as of right now, I have the
1: same tour schedule as Chappelle, Tosh, <laughs> everybody. I was gonna say, right now you're working about as much as you were before. So this hey, is yeah, perfect yeah, it's for it's you. a great match for a... failure. <laughs> you're right back in it. Yeah. No, I'm uh,
0: I'm driving I'm, I'm driving Uber this much because of the quarantine, you know? Yeah, you know the, out the the quarantine by, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, my question: I, 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 We're in Indianapolis, and you're in Indianapolis. You're getting ready to move to California, but you're in Indianapolis right now. And Friday, they're getting ready to open up a lot of businesses. My question is: What changed? Because last week it was the apocalypse, and the only way we could combat this thing is for everyone to stay home. And then there's no new vaccine or anything. Like there was no miracle cure that came up. But all of a sudden, they're like. Nah, Friday should be good.
1: Yeah, I, I think like literally, and, and I don't want to get like too political into this or anything like that. But but I think what, what has changed is people are just—it's another week of people being frustrated. Like like this is our response to it. Not just not, and I'm not just bad mouthing the U.S.'s response, but most of the world—the same kind of thing. It, this is so predictable. This is what has happened with almost every recorded pandemic in history. We, we do this, we, we, we do the smart thing and shut things down to try to stop the spread, you know, it's working, and then people, because human beings are not meant to be cooped up inside, get frustrated, and then we all decide, eh, it's probably fine, <laughs> and then we get it like 10 times worse, so... Yeah,
0: that's what I'm worried about is the second wave of it, I think, is going to be, although driving
1: Uber, I have figured out most people aren't taking this very seriously, yeah. I mean, like the reason I think people were taking it seriously in, in any kind of like tangible way is because shit was closed down. Well, like, yeah. like that's why, like like even if people thought it was nonsense, like you could think it's nonsense all you want. But if B-dubs is closed, you're still not going to B-dubs, you know, but <laughs> whatever your personal beliefs are or not, it doesn't matter. It's closed. What's going to happen now, though, is and there's like already data that's showing it, like even before things have officially been opening up. Uh, cell data is showing that people are just kind of randomly going out more to do things and all these anecdotal stories about, you know, Lowe's is packed and anytime like <laughs> hiking trails or like... Like eventually, we're like people. We're too stupid, and I, and I'm lumping myself into this. I'm not like trying to tell everyone else they're stupid, and I'm so smart. But like human beings in general are just so stupid that even if it's against our greater good, we're like, I want to. I still want to go do this. I don't like to be told what to do.
0: Well, I think one of the biggest mistakes they made was you tell everybody they gotta stay home, and then you give them twelve hundred bucks. They yeah. should have said, you know what? You get your stimulus check after the quarantine if you stay at home. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can't get people – it's like, oh, I've got to pay my bills. What am I going to do? It's like really
1: paying a lot of bills at Best Buy. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, like it, like that That whole thing has been silly too because, like, it, it, it's such an imper- – and, and I don't know what else. Like, again, this is me. I'm not smart enough to determine how it would have – what I would have done that would have made it better. But like, it was such an imperfect situation. Like, I got a stimulus check because it was <laughs> because it was based off of what I made. What like twenty eighteen? I think they kind of did yeah. it off that one, and that was before I hit AGT. So I, I was making Uber money, like you, <laughs> like you said. You know, I was a struggling road comic, <laughs> and then you know, it, it took me until September of last year to finally have like the first time I've actually been making money in comedy. So like right now I don't need it. Like I I've been donating it to people's, you know, causes and and you know, helping pay staffs of certain things and
0: I'll text you my PayPal. There we go. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> so speaking which um, yeah, like that's what I think a lot of people who discovered you on America's Got Talent don't understand is um a comedy it's filled with jealousy, envy, and people are never really happy for other people. You were the exception, and I think a big part of that was when you finally got your big break last September, you had been a road, real road warrior comic for well over a decade. How did you get started in comedy, and when was that?
1: Um, well, well, I, I do appreciate that. One, one of the things that was like really important to me is that no one in comedy seems to have been mad that I got this opportunity. Like, like there's always a case and I've been guilty of it too. Even if, even people I don't dislike, you still go, ah, well, I used to do better than him at shows. So I should have that. So so it it just, it's human nature in this business. Um, so, so it's been very, very cool that I've done everything kind of the right way to the best of my ability that no one's pissed that I got this (laughs) shot. Um, yeah, I, I started, uh, in 2006, so uh, right after I graduated, uh, I went to Indiana State. I got a theater degree because I was a great planner even then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I kind of I didn't know you could start elsewhere. Like, like it seems like one of those things in hindsight, it's the stupidest thing in the world. But at that time, if you don't know anyone, no one tells you you can start, like, in Indianapolis. Like, I knew comedy was there. I'd heard of crackers and stuff like that at that point.
0: Uh, On this show, we refer to them as a local comedy club based off of snack food, or you can call them
1: pretzels. Okay, got it. Fair enough. Well, Well, I mean, they... Don't work me anyway, so it's fine uh, But 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 like I, I knew Comedy existed in Indiana, but I Thought legitimately at that time That you had to be sent from New York Or sent from Los <laughs> Angeles <laughs> so I liked, like that there was like big Factories, like I was like, oh, there's a place called The Laugh Factory, that's where they make <laughs> comics Who then get sent Out to the world which You makes just no see sense. Bill Burr walking in with a Lunch pail and a hard, <laughs> hat. Like a hard hat And just gets the, <laughs> Uh, Yeah, it it sounds so stupid now, but, like, I'm sure you remember, like, when you first start, you don't know anything. And and it's not like there's, there wasn't, like, as many resources in 2006 to, like, really, like, look and be like, oh, okay, this is how these comics did. You could find them, but, like, now everyone has a podcast or, like, every comic, you have an easily found interview with every comic you've ever respected that says how you start, what do you do? At this time, I was just like, shit, I don't know. I, I had a buddy I went. To, I was roommates with in college who was an engineer who was working in Los Angeles. Uh, and basically, he's like, hey, I got this extra room. I know you want to start stand-up. Uh, I won't charge your rent as long as you work. You can't just sit around and do nothing. But as long as you're kind of trying to make stuff happen, I won't charge you. So I packed up my car and went out there. Um, I took a class at the Ice House because I didn't know, again, how to start. Comedy classes are... I don't, don't got to tell you they can be a little iffy yeah it, it, it's the one thing because like it's not it's not always a perfect one-to-one but in comedy most comedians that you can learn from are out on the road well, yeah. like like they're they're tangibly working, you know. Or so don't
0: want to teach you because it's like we have enough competition.
1: Exactly. So, <laughs> again, it's not a perfect – because the class I took, uh, it was with Bobby Oliver and – I love Bobby Oliver. Uh, and Bobby's great. I, I love her. We're still friends to this day. I legitimately learned a lot. But in hindsight, I wouldn't have started with the class because a lot of that class was more – Uh, it, It was more tailored for people who had never performed at all. So it was kind of more for people who were like, hey, I I work in an office, but I've always thought about, you know, telling jokes and this might be a cool thing to do. I had a theater degree. I'd already done some professional theater. I knew how to be on stage. So for me, it was more, OK, now it's just joke writing. So the networking was great. I met lifelong friends, you know, in that class that were kind of associated with it. But again, I just I didn't know where else to start. And I was living near the ice house. So I was like, OK, screw it. This will work. And uh, went, uh, it was one of those kind of classes where at the end you earn a uh, there's like a graduation show that you get to do and <laughs> you do like five minutes at the ice house. And it, it was cool. It was, it was a cool experience. And uh, How'd your first was- five minutes go. Um I, I'm one of those people uh that this'll sounds like a weird humble brag, but like I wish it went worse. Because <laughs> because like because early on for, for someone who was who is just I, I was really, really good for a new comic. Yeah, it doesn't mean I was good. But I didn't go through the same, cause I knew how to perform. I already knew how to be in front of people. I had kind of instinctively been telling jokes my entire life. So I had kind of like a basic foundation. Um, the reason I say I wish I was worse to start is that like my years like three, four, five where you're actually starting to find your real voice were then really rough. Because, because I, I was getting by on like kind of just natural charisma and talent. So Mm -hmm. I was just like, man, I'm a natural. I'm crushing this. This is so easy. And then when I had to start making those next bumps to like, okay, now instead of doing five to 10 minutes, I got to do 20 minutes. It was really rough for a while because I I had not experienced struggling yet where most comics, you kind of start getting that out of the way early. I mean, you're still doing it now. So you understand.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember. So I, I was the same way. Like I had I didn't have any theater background. I mean, I studied theater at Vincennes University here in Indiana for a couple of years, but um, I didn't you know, I hadn't done any professional productions. I had just done productions in college but the first time I did stand-up for the first, I got lucky that when I started doing stand-up in Indianapolis at uh, Pretzels, a club uh, that was known as the funny bone for a little bit and then became another club had opened up so everybody flooded from pretzels to there because they thought they were going to get bumped up so i got thrown to the fire and was hosting professional shows with uh you know bigger name comics now they weren't at the time like my first week was with a juggling magician douchebag but then my second and third weeks were daniel tosh and jim gaffigan hosting those whole weeks and kind of learning by fire then and i remember hearing from like every comic I worked with like how long have you done this and I'd be like eight months and they're like are you fucking kidding me really like I can't believe it and then I remember when it got to be a point where I'm like uh, they're like how long have you done this and I'm like four years and they're like that seems about right and I'm like oh <laughs> shit <laughs> yeah, yeah it, can, it,
1: it can like like a lot of it's just like you're kind of how you handle it personally but like I, I it stunted my growth slightly like, like obviously I still have a good work ethic I was still busting ass and doing shows But since it came so easily that first couple years, I just assumed, hell, I'm just always going to crush this and just knock it out. You know, I'm just going to keep accelerating because I'm the prodigy. I'm the chosen one (laughs) (laughs) of comedy. And and for a while, like you you get a little complacent because you're just like, I'm naturally funny. So whatever. It'll all work out. And like you get to a point where that that'll take you um, for a while but then you kind of have to really kick it into that next year. If you want to move to the next levels.
0: And when did you move back to
1: Indianapolis? So that was about 2010. I think early 2010. Um, uh, it, comedy was going well in LA. Uh, my own mental health was not going well there. It was not um, the best situation for me. I moved there too fast. I was always struggling with money, but, um, uh, I went through a pretty messy breakup. I, I just I, I wasn't mature enough to handle it. Basically, like I wasn't like emotionally ready for it. So it was, as fun as the shows were, and like like I was doing really well with that, it just didn't. It wasn't working. So I kind of had to reset. I went to uh went back to school at Indiana State for about another year, thinking I had to get a real career so I could make a little real money. And basically all I did was double my student loan debt. So, (laughs) (laughs) What
0: what did the darkest part look like when you were in L.A. that first run? Um,
1: It's I don't know how to like tangibly say because it wasn't like there wasn't like one moment where it was like, oh, this is this is rock bottom, you know, that I can kind of. But it was just like a general Malaise that I was always in Like like I didn't handle the breakup well Because um, I kind of moved out there Not not 100% For a girl but essentially for a girl um, And it was a really Messy breakup and, and again Like I, I was in a position and, and this is Something that can I could probably get into Deeper at some other point but You know I was having trouble finding Day jobs that were paying enough Because you know Number one I didn't have a career Or a, a degree that like really like, oh, I can't go work as an engineer with my buddy. <laughs> you yeah. know, like that. I, I have a degree that lets me wear tights professionally. Like that's <laughs> that's what my degree is. Um, so I didn't really have like the that to get me in the door at a lot of good places. And plus, when you have a disability like I do, so many people just assume, hey, he can't do this job. And so they don't even really consider me. So I, I was struggling. I was working at places like Target you know where I'm just barely scraping by So like financially I wasn't doing well um, it, it just It was a really bad Just spot for me mentally Like like I wasn't I was never happy uh, and, and LA is a big Lonely city it, It's one of those kind of places it's, it's hard to explain because you think Like if you haven't been there You'd think like, oh, there's like 10 million people right there. How the hell were you lonely? But like, it, it's kind of like New York. Everyone is doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so many people have moved out to like, because people always told me when I went out there, uh, you know, L.A. is very selfish, like everyone's kind of out for themselves. And and it's not necessarily that that cut and dry a lot of people are out for themselves, but they're just like you where they've sacrificed everything and left their small town in Oklahoma or Indiana or South Carolina to follow this dream. And in their minds, it has to work like this half. I've put everything into this. I can't go back in shame. I can't like fail. So they, and they mistakenly think like, Oh, I can't let anyone else ruin this for me. So they stick to themselves. And LA is just filled with millions of people like that. And, uh, it just it wasn't a good place for me. So I, I moved back home.
0: Well, I feel like that can be because that can be something that can be said about most people is I don't know if it's necessarily selfish, but most people are self-centered. Yeah. You know, like we we see our own issues and our own problems in front of us because you hear it all the time from even friends where it's like. You know, hey, I'm sorry, I've got a lot going on. It's like, well, yeah, we, everyone always has a lot going on. And that's why we kind of focus on ourselves. And it's very easy to kind of lose track of people that, you know, there's very few people in my life that I would say have a perfect life and don't have, you know, any sort of stress or anything else. Even uh, some of my friends that are the most successful and on kind of the top of our, you know, mountain industry, they still have things that, you know, put them in the same mental state that I'm in at times. And it's just yeah. for different reasons. Mine may be financial, but theirs has to do with other things because that's just life.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I can kind of again, it's anecdotal, uh, but but for me, I can tell you, I'm more stressed now than I was as a struggling comic. Um, this is obviously quarantine notwithstanding, That this is a whole different thing that we're all going through. But you know, the uh, the the, str- the financial stress of uh, of kind of the come up is something that like, I'm not gonna claim it was fun or easy, but it's a world I understood. I'm an old trailer park kid. My family was super poor. I didn't have a bed till I went to college. Like, like, like I'm, I'm old school poor. So I know how to be poor. <laughs> you know, I, I know I can live off ramen and instant mac and cheese and, you know, the free appetizer you get at comedy clubs and like, (laughs) (laughs) like I knew I could live off that. And, and I built it into so much of my, and a lot of us do that. It's, it's my, it was part of so much of my identity. It was the, I'm clawing and scratching because people won't give me the opportunity I deserve. And that makes me work harder. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this 12 hour drive and this 15 hour drive to do these (laughs) things. And I'm going to, I'm going to power through. And then I actually finally got the chance and kind of blew up really quickly. AGT is a fast turnaround. It Mm -hmm. happens quick off of that. And now these comedy clubs that wouldn't even open my emails are asking me to come in and, uh, can you headline this weekend? We'll give you, you know, the most money I've ever made in comedy by far. Like, everyone's like, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. We want you to come in, sign out these shows. Now there's this new pressure of, like, oh, shit, they're putting a lot of money into me being here. So I can't... Wing it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I have to like, like, so there's this pressure of like, people are driving six hours to come see me now, and the clubs are offering me good money to come there. And, and again, this sounds like my diamond necklace is so heavy, like, comics would, like, most comics would be dying for the opportunity to do what I'm doing. And, and I don't take that like lightly. I'm not, I don't take this for granted, but it is a new pressure now because you can't, when I was featuring at clubs, did you have a great set? Awesome if you have a terrible set, no one was there for you anyway. Yeah. So like you're kind of in the sweet spot. Now, if like you're on the marquee, you're expected to deliver at a high level. And and it's, it's, it's tough to do that show after show, after show, after show.
0: Yeah. You have no off days anymore and you have to be mindful. I was actually just talking to, uh, Daniel Sloss about this, uh, in a recent episode. He, he went, when we met, when he and I met in, uh, Pretzels in Indianapolis seven years ago He was a unknown Scottish comedian And had been in America a handful Of times so after The show you know it was the traditional Like you were great blah 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 uh, Except for one group uh, That he talked about on a Netflix special but The next time that we, you know, or uh, sorry, not the next time, but last year when he was on tour and did like an actual American tour, I mean, people were crying uh, in the meet and greet to meet him. Like, you know, people were lighting up. People were it was a, it was a different experience. But with that comes a different pressure, because before he was, you know, in America, he could he could have a bad night if he was a dick. It was fine. Now, cell phone cameras, everything else. You have to be mindful because anywhere you go now, you're not. Ryan Neemiller, you're Ryan. America's Got Talents, Ryan Neemiller. And you're right. That is an incredibly different kind of pressure, but it's a pressure nonetheless.
1: Exactly. And again, it's, it's a it's a pressure that I asked for. And in this business, most of us want You you want to get to the level where that's a that's a problem. But it doesn't mean it's not a problem, you know, yeah. like I understand that like people have it way worse than me. It's not a it's nothing where I'm trying to like wave my dick and say this is the, I, I have it worse than any comics ever had it. But like it is different, like just like experiences. Uh, my, my, my girlfriend, um, she's getting better with it. But like it's it, rough for her because she's a very reserved kind of private person. And we'll be out just having lunch and. People just come up to us, yeah. Because America's Got Talent, especially, it's the type of show where it's kind of built around you. You're not only just doing whatever your talent is, but they let you tell your story. You get to connect as a human. That, that that's why it was so effective for me. You know, I, I, I think I'm a pretty funny guy. But if all they, the America's Got Talent, wanted was someone that could be funny for two minutes, there's thousands of us that could do that. But they, they also want people that can connect with the audience at home. And that, that's where I excelled. Like I was very vulnerable, very open, but the kind of flip side of that is when you do that now people think you're buddies, like they, they yeah. got to know you really well on television. Um, my girlfriend and I went to Disneyland. Um, this was back in, I think January before everything shut down. And People just would come up to us when we're like in line, like, Ryan, how are you, buddy? Good to see you. (laughs) And after after they'd leave, she'd be like, "Did you know them? And I was like, no, I've never fucking seen them in my life. (laughs) But like people approach you like they've known you forever and – uh, and it, it can be strange because, like, like we, we joke, but, like, I bet you I'm going to be in the middle of, like, proposing to her one day. And like I'll be, like, <laughs> on one knee and someone will be like, hey, I know you're in the middle of something. <laughs> uh, you might as I get a picture really fast. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, so how,
0: how long were you then on the road before America's Dead House? Let's let's. Keep it uh, so far as uh, pre-AGT. You move back in 2010 to Indianapolis.
1: Uh, what, what happens next? So even for me, it gets a little cloudy um, just because I, I've had so many periods. Like I was always working some sort of day job at the same time. So I was never I, I was one of the road dogs who I was on the road a lot but I was also working at Starbucks or I was also working (laughs) at Walmart, you know? So I I had, because I was working the road as much, but I wasn't quite making the money that I would have hoped. um, I still had to work jobs that, you know, brought a little extra money in, but also were kind of designed where they knew I was going to take those days off for shows no matter what, (laughs) you know? So like, like, I, I, I usually got lucky. Most of like my managers for those type of jobs were very understanding. They they knew I didn't want to move up to manager at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they knew I wasn't there for that. So they were very understanding of like, hey, he's probably going to take a lot of time off to go on the road. And that's fine. Um, so I, I did a lot of that, a lot of bumping around with that what What that prevents you from doing as a comic, it kind of limits how far you can go sometimes, um because I, I wasn't making enough money to fly anywhere. Um, people always think like they're like, "Why would you drive twelve hours? Yeah, because like I can afford that.
0: If I like, yeah, if I flew there, then I'm in the negative for the
1: week. Exactly, it doesn't benefit that because if I drive, if I you know drive, I can sleep in my car. I can bring my own snack. Like there's ways you can save a lot of money. That's a whole other episode probably on itself <laughs> <laughs> um, of like how to handle being on the road. But uh, yeah, so it, so it was a lot of that. There was and and it was a lot of periods too of like. Hey, I'm this comedy Comedy's not just going to work out. No one's ever going to take the chance on a dude with a physical disability like this to give them a big break. I can always get some sort of work, but I'm not going to be able to buy a house with this shit. So so I would have moments of, you know, I would quit comedy for like four months and go try to get a real job. And then I'd get in that real job and be like, man, this sucks. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not built this way. Well, like I, I, I had two or three jobs that like on paper, most people will be like, OK, you're making pretty decent money. You have benefits. You know, you're doing well. You can move up like this is great. People buy their houses with this job. And the whole time I was like. Man, I really wish I was at a dive bar in Iowa (laughs) right now telling jokes for three drunks who don't even know it's comedy night. (laughs) I wish I was doing that instead.
0: Well, what's incredible is that, yeah, like, so I'd say, what was that? Probably it was, I think, maybe six months before you were on America's Got Talent. I want to say it was about six months. You and I were doing a show in Alabama at an Irish pub. And yep. this goes, this to show you that, also, you uh, co-headlined my theater that I booked, uh in Avon, Red Curb Comedy. And the Red Curb show was great. We actually had a good attendance for that. But the, the pub in Alabama was literally seven people, maybe, yep. that were kind of hanging there watching. And now, I mean, you... You can't put your name on a show without it instantly selling out. So you get to America's Got Talent. What was the whole experience like while you were doing the show? And uh, let's go from the first time you appeared on television. What did, the, how, did how did that feel? And what was the uh, feedback like?
1: Uh, it was um, the, the first time. like It's really, America's Got Talent's really strange emotionally what it does for you. Cause it's like this weird combination. Cause like, it's no secret that the first two rounds of the show are taped. So those are taped ahead of time. Um, so it was, it was very strange. So like I didn't air, my first audition didn't air until I think June 4th. Um, uh, that was taped in March. Um, at, at that <laughs> point, at, at that point, I already taped the first round and the judge cuts that's taped in April. So before, My, I even knew what my air date was. I already knew I had made it to the live shows. Like that's how kind of far along you're in in that process. So like, it was this really surreal, probably three month period where it's like, like sitting in this like thing, like because at that point like you're not allowed to tell anyone. Obviously there's there's no you know confidentiality agreements and all that. Mm -hmm. You can't talk about what hasn't happened. So like. It was weird being in this position where it's like, I knew my life was going to change in a gigantic way, but I was getting no tangible benefits from it, and I couldn't discuss it with anybody. (laughs) So I'm kind of like in this weird bubble of like, the only people I could talk to about was like my mom, because she was there, and the other contestants that I was on the show with who were in the same, you know, experience. So just kind of sitting around for that three months because I was still doing shows. Um, and at that point, I was able to tell people like, hey, I auditioned for America's Got Talent. You can't say anything happen, but like, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm probably going to be on the show. Um, and ju- it, it's so strange that like most people can't say this, but I know the exact seven minutes where my life changed in such a dramatic way um i just i went over to my sister's apartment and we just kind of watched it there it's really weird watching yourself on television because especially at that point because like obviously i knew i did well but you don't know what the edit is they don't show you that ahead of time it's not like they say like hey is this okay if we air it this way like no they're doing their thing so i was kind of in like the same like watching it with everyone else at the same time and then just right after it ended uh, I think it took me three days to get through all the social media stuff. Like, like you know, I I got like you know hundreds of text messages and and DMs and you know all my social medias like you know went up by like ten times. Like, like it's crazy how quick that happens. And and like I think why I, I'm glad it happens now. You know, because I've been trying to get on America's Got Talent for five years. It, it wasn't yeah. something where I just on a whim was like, you know what? I think auditioning <laughs> for that show would be cool. Like I was actively trying to get on that show because I know they let you tell your story. And I knew that would be where my kind of angle would be. And had I got it five years ago, I would have immediately collapsed because it's it's a lot. Most people in comedy, when they start to get big, it's kind of gradual. You can kind of see... You know, the steps yeah. here. It's like, oh, they did this and then they got, you know, Corden and then they got this and then they got their neck. You know, you can kind of see those bookmarks with America's Got Talent. I was a dude doing, like you said, a, an Irish pub in Alabama for seven people to instantly getting to headline clubs. It's surreal and, and it's a lot. It happens fast.
0: And what was uh, what was the experience like getting to meet Chris Jericho and uh, film a, a segment with them. What was that? How did that come about? And what was that like?
1: Okay, yeah. So, so that is that's one of the coolest things I've ever done. <laughs> <Quite right laughs> um, so for those like so those those who might not know or don't follow America's Got Talent all super closely, um, when you get to the finals, uh, they there's ten acts that make to the finals, and they always do some sort of duet. Like, you, you do a performance with a celebrity of some kind. Um, for musicians and singers and stuff, it's really easy. They bring in a singer and you sing a song. Like, those duets are pretty easy for the most part. With the comedians, it's weird because I can't go up there and start telling jokes with Howie Mandel. You know, we can't <laughs> do like a, an Evan Costello thing, just, it doesn't work that way, you know? Um, So I had pushed Even from my opening audition I strongly pushed um, The Cripple Threat name So Cripple Threat uh, I'm a huge wrestling fan That was the original goal Even before stand-up I wanted to be a pro wrestler Uh, Cripple Threat was the name I came up with That I was going to use And then after I trained to be a wrestler For a few months And my body couldn't take it I was like Well I don't want this name to go to waste (laughs) So I just became (laughs) the Cripple Threat of Comedy instead um, I pushed that on the show. Like I kind of branded myself on AGT as the cripple threat. You know, my fans are club nub. That's like, you know, I, I was basically using pro wrestling tactics to kind of brand myself on there. So I made no, no excuses about being a wrestling fan on there during the finals or it's probably during the semifinals. I hadn't moved to the finals yet, but that all happened so fast. They plan ahead. So they basically asked me, Hey, if you make the finals, like who are your favorite wrestlers? You know, and they weren't telling me specifically what was happening, but they're like, we're kind of just pre-planning. Like we have this basic idea. We don't want to tell you too much because so we don't get your hopes up in case it doesn't work out. But like, who are your favorite wrestlers? So I gave them a little list. Um, you know, some, some of like the, the obvious one like you know, Shawn Michaels, the Undertaker. you know, like just people that I really respect. But I was like, my all time favorites, Chris Jericho, um, And and I even told them this at the time. I was like, like, he would be my choice if we're going to do something. It would be him. It's probably not going to work because he now wrestles for AEW, which is not associated with NBC Universal. So this might be getting too into the weeds for some people who aren't wrestling fans or don't care about this. WWE has contracts with NBC Universal because USA Network is part of that. Mm -hmm. So I assumed it was one of those things that like, there's no way that they'll approve Chris Jericho because he wrestles for the competition. He's not associated with, you know, something the company is tied with. Um, But I I was like, if I had a choice, it would be him. And uh, apparently either they liked me enough to do it anyway, or didn't feel it mattered and didn't care. But they ended up contacting Chris. Um, Chris, um, you know, he's he's in a position in his life and his career where he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't want to. Yeah. AGT is a big deal. He doesn't need to appear on that show to help his brand. It doesn't really do anything (laughs) for his trajectory at this point. You know, so so he took a look at like the videos when they approached him about it and it was during the I think the other semi-final week um, I was just watching in the hotel AGT when it was on live with some of the other contestants who weren't on that week and then suddenly I get like this notification on Twitter you've been followed by Chris Jericho and I was like Oh shit! What is? <laughs> What's happening here? Uh, and then he sent me a DM, and he's like, "Real, that's really fun. Like you're really funny, man. I'm a big fan." Uh, and I and I, I thought that was it. Like I didn't make the connection in my head. I was just like, "Oh shit!" My childhood, you know, <laughs> idol just thinks I'm a, you know, he he saw the clip. Uh, I know he was friends with a couple of comedians, like Brad Williams, and because Brad Williams had done the cruise, and so I thought like oh, I'm really good friends with Brad, maybe. It just kind of got mentioned that way he saw that brad mentioned something whatever um so i didn't make the connection at that point yet uh, and then once i made the finals they told me hey this is the plan we got chris jericho he's going to come in and film this um and, and kind of to show what a cool dude chris is he his band fozzy was going to be in la because they were opening i think for iron maiden So for him, it was like that was just a cool thing for him. He was going to be like the L.A. Coliseum, you know, that night for like one of like the bigger gigs of his music career. But he took the time during the day to come film this stuff uh, in Chatsworth, California, at a little wrestling school. that There was a ring. Um, It it was amazing. Like he was he was super humble, easy to talk to. Um, He had really good ideas. And one of the cool things he did is he kind of just instinctively knew because like. TV people for better or worse they just they don't know how wrestling works. Yeah. Like so whenever they whenever they try to write a wrestling thing, it's usually bad because they just don't quite get the nuances of it. So Chris was very strong. He was like, "Hey, just let Ryan and I do our thing. Like, what, what I know the basic idea you want, let us get you there. You know, let us kind of talk. We, so I don't I don't want to make this cheesy or hokey." Yeah. So so we basically just improv'd most of it, which was awesome. Uh, he was super easy to work with. And, and then the coolest thing that's happened, um, it was really well received, which was awesome. We were kind of a little worried about that because it was so different. You know, everyone else was singing with, you know, Macklemore and you know, things like <laughs> that, which, which was great. But like, you kind of know what you're getting when you see a duet like that. And this was so different. Uh, it was really well received. Uh, it was It was funny. They let me kind of act in that. Uh, And then the cooler thing that's happened is like is Chris and I are friends now. So it's like like we we text all the time. I had Thanksgiving at his house. Um, I don't know when this uh, when this podcast will actually be put up. But uh, as we speak right now, I'm going to be on AEW Dynamite um, because they're kind of doing like quarantine skits. Uh, So Chris is doing something called The Bubbly Bunch, where basically (laughs) they're doing like parodies of – uh, of like online viral videos and stuff, like him and the inner circle and all that. So they did the one. Um, have you seen the uh, the stuntmen in quarantine ha. video? So basically, it, it's this kind of. I'll, I'll give the bare bones description. It's a video it, it, They're stuntmen And they're doing a thing Where they're like In a fight With each other So they kind of Punch at the camera And then it cuts to Another one Taking the punch <laughs> And they counter With a kick And then you know Into the camera And then it cuts to Someone else taking the kick And then they do something So Chris did a version of that uh, And he asked me To be a part of it So like, awesome. I sent in a video um, So I think Brad Williams hits me <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and I hit somebody else. Like, so it, it's just like, it's a cool thing that like, you know, 16 year old me would not fucking believe that me and Chris Jericho are like, are not, not only got to like work together and do this cool little skit, but we're like legitimate friends. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like, it, it, it's been, you know, it like life changing is kind of strange Cause like I'm on like, I'm seen as like a peer, with some of these people because you don't see yourself that way when you make it up. Cause like, I know the struggle. I know all these dive bar shows that I've done. Like I knew all of that. And so now like people just suddenly seem like, Oh yeah, he's the guy from America's got talent. He's really funny. He's this big deal. You don't see yourself that way. Cause you see working at Starbucks and sleeping in your car and all <laughs> that. So now the fact that like, Oh yeah, I'm just casually buddies with Chris Jericho is the coolest thing.
0: That is amazing. Uh, so you're also a big gamer. Yes. Where did the love of video games come from? What was the first console that you owned and played?
1: So um, video games just always kind of been a part of my life as long as I remember. Like, I'm an 80s kid. I was born in 82. Me too. So, yeah. So so I um, we're in that age where, like, we kind of hit when Nintendo really mm-hmm. kind of made it super popular to be a, video, a gamer. Uh, my cousins had an NES uh, and I remember like being like three or four years old and being like, oh, shit, this is awesome. <laughs> um, and just like any other kid, you know, I was like, I got to have a Nintendo. Got to have this. Um, so so Nintendo was the first console that kind of really made me fall in love with video gaming. Um, and it just kind of has never gone away. Like it, it's a lot more now that I actually have a little bit of money. I can afford to buy the games that I want back then. It was a lot of, you know, renting a game at the grocery store and, you know, whatever happens to be available, you try it, you know, so we didn't own a ton of games ourselves, but yeah, it it just always been a thing. Like I I've loved games. Um, It just kind of like the same way. I love pro wrestling. It lets you escape into something different. Um, You know, um, My, you know, I I grew up in a pretty volatile uh, home. You know, my dad was a pretty hardcore alcoholic. Uh, We lived in a trailer. It wasn't exactly, you know, always the calmest place to be so having things like video games and pro wrestling to where i can be like hey i don't have to worry about the real world for a while i'm just trying to save this princess
0: <laughs> who keeps getting
1: kidnapped by this giant lizard for some reason I, oh I'm shit gonna, she's in
0: another castle yeah, yeah.
1: so i'm gonna focus on this for a while uh, and it's kind of never gonna I, I like getting to uh, immerse myself in a different world
0: What's been your all-time biggest challenge in a game? Like, what's the game that gave you the most
1: headaches over the years? Uh, Most headaches? Um, It it, it seems, like, weird in hindsight because, like, I, I know this game so well now. Um, And plus the Internet exists. So it kind of takes a lot of that away. Uh, But Legend of Zelda Link to the Past is my all time favorite game. So it came out in like ninety one. So, you know, I'm nine, ten years old. uh, Don't have the Internet or anything at that point. So that was still the time where like the way you figured out how to get through stuff is if your buddies also play the game, you guys go home after school. You play for hours then you come back the next day and you can pair notes of what you <laughs> discovered. So, um, so kind of like the 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 challenge at that time because at that point, that was the most advanced game I'd ever played in my life. It was so there's like two worlds and like you're doing all, you have to like do all this exploration and, and trial and error and, and just kind of trying to like overcome that with no other resources. Now, like I still love games, but it's not quite the same because I'm like, I'm a grown man who's busy so if I get stuck on a puzzle, I don't have an entire summer, <laughs> you know, to solve it. I'm like, I'm gonna try for 10 minutes and if I can't figure it out, we're going to Google. <laughs> Fine. So so kind of getting to overcome that game over the course of a year uh, is still one of my proudest moments. It's my favorite game still. I play it at least three times a year. And uh, favorite console? Uh, favorite console all time. Um, probably either the Super Nintendo or, or actually uh, the most one I have played the most is the Xbox one. That's, uh, that, that was my kind of, uh, I know it's unpopular because PS4 is the, uh, <laughs> is the clear winner of this generation. But, um, I, I always stuck with Xbox. I'm a big, uh, I'm a achievement hunter. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of gamer score. Uh, I, I like stats and numbers and things like that. Um, so that really appealed to me. And I think just like anything else, the the differences between like PlayStation and and Xbox are so minuscule like the consoles run the same mm-hmm. you basically make your decision based off of two things in my eyes the exclusives that the console has that you want to play and what your buddies play yeah that that's really what it is cuz you're getting for anything that's cross platform you're getting pretty much the same experience it doesn't Matter like 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 I said, one's not so much more powerful than the other one. Where you're you're missing out if you play it there. It's whatever games you want to play that are exclusive and what your buddies play. And I, and I chose Xbox That's what my buddies played. What are you what currently are you playing? playing? Uh, right now, I am playing um, Animal Crossing a shit ton. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, Animal Crossing? Uh, Animal Crossing is basically a pretty chill. It's for the Nintendo Switch. Uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons. It's a it's a pretty chill. Um, basically, you're, you're you're on an island, and you're just trying to build up a community at an island. So it's kind of like a simulation type game, which um, could very well be what happens in 2021 for exactly. Aside. For me, I feel it's prepping. <laughs> <laughs> it's just prepping for the future. So so it's really it's really cutesy kind of animal characters and stuff like that, and it's very low stakes. You can't lose the game, which is, which is also nice too. So like you can spend, you know, and, and there's so many like. It's weird how calming it is because, like, if you want to just decorate your house with cool furniture and stuff, you can do that for a while. If you want a garden, you can do that. <laughs> want to build, a, you know, make an orchard, or you want to build up this cool like plaza, you can do that. <laughs> if you want to spend, uh, you know, four hours fake fishing, <laughs> it, it, it just, it's so it just it's so chill. And honestly, like like the game is like. It's been sold out. It's hard to get right now. Like Nintendo Switches are almost impossible to find right now during quarantine. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people did the same thing. They're just like, I'm gonna be stuck inside, and and, and this type of game is great because, like like my girlfriend has put in a hundred hours in this game already. <laughs> she, she can't play video games for more than half an hour. Like like she likes video games, but like her brain hasn't been trained. Like like some like you know lazy douchebags like us, yeah. (laughs) Be able to sit and spend you know twelve hours, you know, just chugging Mountain Dew and eating pizza (laughs) and and, you know playing NBA Two K, you know, or something like that. So like it's one of those games that like. Like, it's just so chill because not everyone wants an intense, you know, they don't they don't want doom. They don't want like, oh, yeah, let kill, it, kill it. They, they want to just talk to cute little animal characters <laughs> and, and, and plant their flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's been, you know, while my mental health has kind of been up and down during this because quarantine sucks, man. It does. Yeah. Uh, th- it's kind of been a nice thing to like, Instead of focusing on that. Let's see how many fish I can catch. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever played Dead by Daylight? Uh, A little bit too stressful for me. Even before this, even before all this, you know, like, like I'm one of the, uh, I'm a person I don't like being scared. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a feeling. I know some people love that, like adrenaline rush. That they love horror movies and they love, like, like even like I I hate roller coasters. I hate that feeling of like you know pit in my stomach. Like I don't like being. I don't like that tension. I I can do it in really small doses so I can maybe play, like, a game or two of Dead by Daylight, but, like, when you start hearing, like, the music ramp up because... Yeah. I'm just like, I I don't like this. Yeah, I gotta go. Uh,
0: So, we're about out of time here. Um, What what advice would you give to new comics starting out, or maybe uh, if there's comics listening who are struggling right now because you're somebody who has been in every situation in this business that you can possibly be in from novice to uh, road warrior to uh, self-doubt and everything else what advice would you give to them about this industry?
1: Um, uh, one, I, I think like the most important skill that a comedian can actually have especially early on when they're kind of on the come up is self-awareness. Um I would say hone that like obviously like I mean there's the cliche things that just make perfect sense in this business you know do open mics keep writing you know yeah. <laughs> you know all that kind of that, that that's that's I, I, don't, I I'm saying nonsense you know kind of tongue in cheek but that's the obvious nonsense that we all know yeah mm-hmm. like you don't get good if you don't do shows if you're not micing if you're not writing duh um
0: so well, that's why I wanted to ask you this because I feel like you yeah this is this is the the advice I want this is the real advice this like the the non cliché this is you're somebody who's been through everything in this business.
1: Yeah yeah so so the, the one thing I would say is is learn to be self-aware if you're not already there. Um and, and that that factors into everything in this business. Um you know be self-aware to know when you actually kill and when you actually bomb, like, like like that's one of the biggest things. Like like the amount of comedians, and this is at all levels, but it's usually at the open mic level that are like, "Man, I crushed it!" and I'm like, "I was in the room." No, you didn't. And and, that, and it's fine to bomb. Like like. I've bombed after AGT, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it's happened, you know, it, it's part of the deal, but like having the soap awareness and, and it goes both ways too. Like there are some comics who think they crush every time or, or they've been telling the same jokes that have never done well for like a decade. And it's like, okay, that's, that's fine. But like, you gotta know, Right. Like <laughs> like like it's OK to change your jokes like if they're not working, sometimes you just got to go, OK, shit, this isn't working. What else can I do? But if you do the same fucking joke <laughs> the same way for a decade and it never works like you got to know. Um, and that also goes the other way. Um, I know I you, you know him as well, but uh, the, he's my favorite example of this. Uh, Quindale, who is. Oh, yeah, I love Quindale, who I think is one of the funniest human beings on the planet. Every time I've talked to him over the course of knowing him for a decade plus, he thinks he's bombed. He thinks he's <laughs> the least funny motherfucker that's ever existed on the planet. He always talks about how bad he's doing, how he bombed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So you have to have to have the self-awareness to know, like, Hey, if you're actually doing well, you know, that's okay to know that too. Yeah. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, Knowing who you are I think is also important um, uh, What do you but, mean by that? Uh, so So Obviously like I have a pretty Noticeable disability If I had never Talked about it I would not have gotten to where I am th- th- It's what sets me apart It's what makes me different and And, and I don't want to talk about it Forever to the extent that I do Now but like it's also who I am. Like, like having a disability in, in comedy is weird because so many people will be like, well, he's just cheaty. It's all he talks about. I'm like, no, I'm talking about my life. Yeah. You don't get you don't get mad at a at a hillbilly comic for talking about growing up in a trailer park. That's his life. You don't talk about, you know, with a if a black comic's talking about the challenges of being black. You don't be like, well, he's just, no, it's his life. When a woman talks about the challenges of being a woman, that's her life. With disabilities, people like, they always want to give me shit, like, well, quit. No, it's my life, That this is what I know. Not only that, you if you don't address it. It's, it's, so, much to, yeah, it's yeah. so much weirder, it's so much weirder. I've done a lot of shows where just, just for fun, like, you know, if there's barely anyone in the audience, or it's just like a weird night. I'll do it just for fun. Like, let's see how long I can just not talk about it. Uh, I've done like complete 45s without doing it. So so it's not even a thing where like, like I I can do, I don't have to do it, but it's important to me to talk about it. Um, And and I think that's an important thing for comics. They need to do too. Like know what's important to you and then do that. If it, if it means a lot to you, you're, you're going to be more passionate about it. You're going to connect with people. Um, And the other thing I would say is, well, and this is the hardest one because, you know, the camaraderie that comes around with like kind of building up and doing mics. You know, you have your open mic buddies, the people that you're kind of coming up with and you're around all the time. You have this tendency to want to impress them and and you have to kind of realize that at the end of the day, If you want to make it in this business, their opinions on your jokes don't matter nearly as much as you think they do. You can't play to the back of the room. Uh, You know, like, like, like. I I I respect you, Brad. We're friends. We've I've known you a long time. If you don't think a joke that I do is funny, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) If you've heard it a thousand times, guess what? I don't care. This audience (laughs) has never heard it before. Uh, and, And it's one of those things that like, like the way I always describe it is like, your goal is to get strangers to like you enough to give you money. That's kind of what this business is essentially. You you need to be funny enough that people who don't love you will give you money <laughs> because they had a good time. Like I love the fact that my peers like think I'm funny. I my mom thinks I'm the funniest human being on the planet. That's awesome. I also don't give a shit because she doesn't have to. Pay, she doesn't have to buy tickets. She's my mom, you know. She doesn't do whatever, like, I, I will get her in. So it's like it's a great bonus, but it doesn't matter because she's not paying my bills. Not anymore. Not since I got ATT anyway. So, so like, like kind of this understanding that like having the respect of your peers is fine, but it doesn't. You don't have to pander because if you start writing jokes for other comics. You're you're more than likely never going to get past a certain level because because a, a, a farmer in Iowa doesn't give a shit about what it's like <laughs> telling jokes at an open mic or or how crazy Los Angeles is. You know, <laughs> like you kind you have to write jokes you think are funny for people and for people who aren't in the business because we're the most jaded assholes on the planet. You're never going to get to love that that you so desperately need in your heart <laughs> from other comics consider I mean, all of us comics your father <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so, so, so that would be the big thing don't play to the back of the room if you have to tell a joke in front of the other comics for the hundredth time because it's not quite where you want it to be tell that joke for the hundredth time
0: it's good that's- practice anyways because that's the job is to tell the joke for the thousandth time as if you've never said it out loud before exactly Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us, buddy. I wish you all the best of luck,
1: and uh, we'll have you back on soon. I appreciate it, man. Let's hopefully uh, hang out soon if we're not all dead.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you didn't think this podcast was funny, remember what? Comedy subjective.